Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Thank you, Brian, for leading us in prayer this morning. Uh, please open your Bibles to the book of Genesis. If you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, that's okay. You should be able to find a paperback Bible underneath one of the chairs in front of you. And you can open, if you have one of those paperback Bibles, to page one. An easy passage to find this morning, Genesis chapter one. I want to make note, as I did last week, if for whatever reason you feel like you want to be excused from the sanctuary, we do have an overflow room uh, where the service is being live streamed. I announced that last week and it turns out the, the live stream was not functional at the time, so my apologies for that, but it is working this morning. There are chairs set up. Uh, you can participate or watch the service from there if that's preferable for you. <clears throat> well, we are um, continuing in a new sermon series here this morning at New Life. We started last week with this series called The Gospel According to Genesis. Last week we looked at the first just two verses and we saw this declaration that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. We saw that there is a starting point. There was a starting point, a beginning point for the universe and that God in his mighty power actually created all things out of nothing. Um, but we left last week with the universe in a kind of a state of disorder. You might remember that the passage says that the universe was created formless and void, it says in verse 2. So uh, God creates and everything is in kind of a state of, of chaos and disorder. That's where we left last week. We're picking up this week on that point. Uh, I've thought very often that there are really two kinds of people in the world. There are the messy and the tidy. There are the disorganized and the organized. If you come to my home, you'll note that Mary is the tidy one and I am the messy one. Um, I think the most orderly, organized person I've ever known is a guy named Don Polakoff. He was my boss at the Indiana Manufacturers Association where I worked before I went to seminary in Indianapolis. And uh, Don Polakoff's office was always perfectly clean, perfectly in order. There was never a paper on his desk. Everything was filed away. And I remember he had this little set of pencils out on his desk and a little holder, eight pencils, all sharpened to an absolute sharpened point just in case he needed a pencil. This was a man who valued order. He was very organized. And I want to tell you this morning that God also values order. He's a God of order and organization. And that's what we're going to be seeing here in these next verses in Genesis 1. It's God bringing order to chaos. And man, I tell you, there is something that we really need today in our culture right now, right? Is some measure of order. Doesn't it feel like our country, our culture, our nation is in a state of chaos as we see what is happening in various, various U.S. cities, as we see what's happening in race relations, as we see what's happening in our politics. It seems like disorder is everywhere. But here's what God can do. God can enter into a situation of disorder and bring order to chaos. 
He can make sense of confusion. He can take what is messy and make it manageable. He can take things in their wrong place and put them in their right place. That's what we long for him to do and that's what we know he can do because that's what we see that he does in these first six days of creation. So today, we are going to look at just the first three days and the next Sunday, we'll look at the second three days of creation. So these first three days are explained, described for us in verses three through 13. So let's stand out of respect for God's word and I will read Genesis 1, three through 13. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Genesis 1, chapter three. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants, yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind, on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. God in heaven, we do pray for your spirit to give wisdom and understanding to our eyes and our hearts as we consider this portion of your holy word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, recovering the first three days, that makes it easy for me to come up with my first three points. Uh, The first point is, no surprise, the first day. We're going to consider here the first day and then we'll go on to the second and third day. The first day described for us in verses three through five. Pardon me. One thing I want to pause and reflect on just a moment before we get into this is um, a question that many have and that has uh, engendered a a number of lengthy discussions and that is this question of how old the earth actually is. There are different opinions on that. Uh, science tells us the earth is something like 4.5 billion years old, the universe more like 14 billion years old. Uh, there are others who would interpret the Bible in such a way to say that no, the earth is not that old, it's actually young. These would be called young earth creationists and they would say the earth is more like 6,000 years old. Um, <clears throat> there's a discrepancy here between some readings of the Bible and the findings of science. 
I think we should be very careful to read too much into the Bible as to what the age of the earth is and don't think that that's why the scripture was written to tell us or to answer that particular question. Not that the Bible might not have something to say about it, but I would be slow to depend on the Bible too much to answer that question. But I want to address one um, theory that is presented. There's something called the gap theory. Uh, If you're a student of Genesis, you may have heard of this. And the gap theory would say this, that there's something very important that happened between verse 2 and 3 here in Genesis chapter 1. They would say that there is this enormous time span between verses 2 and 3. Part of the reason the gap theory is presented, it's a way to try to account for the apparent old age of the earth. Now, it's true, we, we don't know, I mean, we should just acknowledge this, we don't know how much time passed between verses 2 and 3 when the earth was without form and void and when, when God said, let there be light. We don't know how much time passed between those two events. But the gap theory would say this, <clears throat> that God created everything in verse 1, and then in verse 2, what is really happening there is that there's a judgment that God is pronouncing on creation that there was some kind of spiritual rebellion that took place in here, even before the fall in chapter three. And so God judged the earth in response to that. And so um, these people would read verse two as saying not that the earth was without form and void, but that God made the earth without form and void, that he judged the earth in response to this rebellion. And so they would say then that What we see in verse two is long, long before what's in verse three, and so when we look at a lot of ancient fossils that would seem to indicate a very old earth, the gap theory people would say, yeah, that belongs, those those ancient fossils belong to the state of affairs in verse two, but not in verse three. So that's their way of accounting for an older earth. Now, the problem with that is that it seems that the better translation here of verse two is that the earth was without form. Not that it became without form and void. It's not like it was created in a different state and then God judged it. No. The earth was without form and void. That's the way God made it to begin with. And then he brought order to it, which is what we're about to to learn. Uh, So the, the verse doesn't seem to indicate that. What we have here is creation in progress, but I think a bigger Um, problem for the gap theory is that we just don't see anything else in scripture that would indicate that there was some kind of spiritual rebellion and judgment taking place in verse 2. We don't get any indication of some kind of recreation starting in verse 3, which is significant because when we get to Noah, we see that that's exactly what does happen. There is a judgment on the earth with the flood and a recreation uh, in some significant time is given to that fact, but nothing in the rest of scripture about this kind of gap theory idea. So I I would say gap theory is is inadequate, Um, but nonetheless, we don't know how much time passed between verses two and and verse three. And so maybe you have some ideas about what's going on there, would love to hear those, but uh, I would not recommend the gap theory. So uh, let's move on. Just wanted to mention that because I know that might be a question in some of your minds. Verse three then, how does this whole passage start? Well, with these very important words, this very small phrase, and God said. So here we have the universe without form and void, and God says something and something happens. God begins to 
add to his creation here. Notice that he doesn't do it by waving a magic wand to make things happen. He doesn't say abracadabra. He, he speaks these words. He just says, let there be light. And then you see, there was light. And you see that repeated phrase after God says something, and it was so. It, it says in verse 7, and elsewhere. It's like when God speaks, there's no delay. There is just an immediate result. God speaks when he wants something to happen. He says it's going to happen, and it does. And we see this repeated at the start of each of the six days of creation. It always begins with, and God said, verse 3, verse 6, verse 9, verse 11, verse 14, and God said. And so we, we get here the beginning of an extremely important doctrine in the Christian faith, which is the centrality and the power and the authority of the word of God. When God wants something to happen, the means that he uses is his word. And when he speaks, it happens. There's no opposition. There's no delay. We, as Christians, practice a religion that is extremely word-centered, more so than experience-centered or emotion-centered. It's word-centered. We worship a talking God, not a God who is distant and far off, who we don't know, we don't know what he thinks. No, he's a God who speaks and tells us lots of stuff. And if we want to know and understand ourselves in this world, we need to listen to God because he uses his word. That's his primary instrument. Already, verse 3, chapter 1, the centrality of the word of God. God creates through the word. We're just seeing that here in Genesis chapter 1. But do you know that God conducts the act of providence also through his word? Hebrews 1.3 says he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The whole universe is held together by God's word. Salvation comes through the word. 1 Peter 1, 23 says we are born again by the living and abiding word. That's how people are saved. They hear the word of the gospel. They hear the scriptures and they respond in faith. Sanctification is through the word. John 17, 17, the high priestly prayer. Jesus is praying to the Father and he says, Father, sanctify them by your word, by the word of truth. Judgment comes by his word. Jeremiah 23, 23 says God's word is like a hammer that breaks rock into pieces. You just imagine that image of a sturdy rock and a guy brings a hammer down on that thing and it just shatters. That's a picture of the power of God's word. So we're seeing this established very early in the scriptures, and we'll see it throughout from the beginning to the end. And so the obvious question to ask all of you, friends, is this. As Christians, what role is the word of God playing in your life right now? I mean, you're Christians, and you say you believe the Bible. I know that, but what Place, what priority does the word have in your life right now? If God wants to do something in your life, if you want to know where to proceed, what step to take, where to go next, if you're looking for comfort and direction, you need God's word. 
When God wants to do something, when he wants to bring conviction, when he wants to assure you, when he wants to bless you, when he wants to save you, the way he does it is through his word. How can you try to follow God and please him and be honoring to him apart from his word? It's impossible. You can't do it. What role does the word have in your life? Personally, privately, and what the time you spend personally in, in your home? Is your word present in your home? Is it talked about? Is it read? Is it a priority for you to sit under the word preached? When God wants to act, he speaks, and his word does what he wants it to do, always. You cannot hear the word of God and not be changed, not be affected in some way. This is what Isaiah says, my word shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And that's what is exactly happening here in the first chapter of Genesis. God sends forth his word to create, and that's what happens. So how do you respond to the word of God when you hear it, when you read it, when you sit under it preached? Are you dismissive of it? Are you rational? Are you apathetic? Be careful about that. The word is doing something. Or are you responding in faith and obedience? The centrality of the word. So what does God create here? He says, God said, let there be light. So that's what we see. The first thing that's created, verse three, is light. And there was light and God saw that it was good. So we're gonna see this as a repeated phrase in Genesis chapter one, the the repeated affirmation that what God creates is always good. We as Christians have a high view of creation. We believe bodies and physical substance, the earth, trees, oceans, sun, moon, stars are all good things. These are not things that are obstacles to us, not things we're waiting to be delivered from. No, God has created these things and pronounced them good. Now, You might have a question here, which is the fact that the sun, you might notice, is not created until day four, a little later, and yet still we have light. So how is that happening? How can there be light when there is no sun? I think the answer to that is just simply this, that from God emits, emanates a, a, a kind of light that shines into our world. I think what perhaps the writer is trying to communicate here is that God doesn't need the sun to show forth light, that there's plenty of light in God himself. Uh, This would be very relevant to people who would be reading this in the day that it was written because their temptation would have been to worship the sun. That was very common and common in some religions today, to look up in the sky and see this big fiery ball and think, wow, that thing must be God, let's bow down to it. And what Moses is saying here is, no, God doesn't need the sun. The sun is an important part of our universe, but God doesn't need it. Light can come from him apart from the sun. We don't worship the sun, we worship Elohim, the creator of the heavens and the earth. Well, how does this relate to uh, the the gospel? Um, We see here this relation to darkness going on. Um, God separated the light from the darkness. The state of affairs in which light is created is, is one of darkness. The name of this sermon series is The Gospel According to Genesis. So 
Are we getting anything about the gospel here already? In verse 3, 4, and 5, and I think, yes, we are. Who is the light today? You know, you look to John chapter 8, verse 32, and Jesus says this, Jesus Christ, I am the light of the world. And we look into our world and we see all the, everything going on in, in our world, the things that I mentioned earlier, the chaos in our cities, race relations, politics. We see repeated examples of moral darkness in our world. We live in a dark world in many ways, but into that darkness comes Jesus Christ who says, I am the light of the world. You've got to think that Jesus had this passage in mind when he said that. Just as God imposed light on the darkness, so does Jesus come to our world today and impose his light on the darkness of the world. And in fact, conversion to Christ, becoming a Christian, is described in the scriptures in words that are taken directly from Genesis 1, 3, and following. Paul says this, For God, who said, light, let light shine out of darkness, that's Genesis 1, 3, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. <laughs> That's what happened when you, when you became a Christian. You were living in darkness. You didn't know your right hand from your left. And then you heard the gospel and the light of Jesus shone into your heart. And you believed and you became a believer. And the reason that people reject this gospel today is also related to these early verses because Jesus says in John 3, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. This is why people reject the gospel. Primarily it's because of this kind of bizarre statement that people love darkness. They love to live in darkness. That's what they prefer. You shine the light to them and they hide their eyes and they turn and they run. And that just exposes the moral depravity of the heart of men and women who prefer darkness to light. There's a guy named John Lennox who's a famous scientist and Christian. He's a defender of the faith, written many books, does, gets involved in a lot of debates. And he tells the story of how he had an exchange with Stephen Hawking, very famous scientist. And Stephen Hawking said... That, that he believed that the idea of a heaven is a fairy tale story for people who are afraid of the dark. So, you know, the idea there is that that's what Christians do. We've made up this idea of heaven because we don't like darkness, we're scared, but we'll just come up with this fairy tale idea of a good place and that'll make us feel better. And John Lennox responded to Hawking and said that he thinks quite the opposite, that atheism is a fairy tale story for people afraid of the light. And I think that's true. People don't want the light in their life. They don't want their sin exposed. They don't want to have to obey and follow a savior who claims authority. And so they prefer the darkness instead. Today, friends, are you running from the light? Is that describing you today? The light is shining into your life and you're fleeing for whatever reason. Turn to the light who is Jesus Christ. We get a hint of that here in these first few verses. Let's go on to the second day. Verses six through eight. 
You'll see how um, the first day ends. In verse five, there was evening and there was morning. The first day is completed. Now, this raises another question, which is what kind of days are these? And there's a lot of debate about this. We're not gonna get into that this morning, um, but I will address that next Sunday, so you can, if you can just hang on to that question. Uh, what kind of days are these? We'll devote some time to that next week. But for the time being, we see the first day comes to an end here in verse five, and now we see verse six, and God said, so here it is again, God speaks, and then we see this phrase, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Now this is probably one of the most peculiar things in, in Genesis chapter one, trying to understand, I mean this is not a word that we use very often, an expanse. What is an expanse? Um, you can always tell when there's some um, maybe ambiguity in a text when you see different Bible versions use different words for the same thing. And so the NIV says, um, that uh, God said, let there be a vault. Uh, the King James Version calls it a firmament. The New Living Translation calls it a space. So it, it's a little hard to understand exactly what is meant here, but probably what this is is just kind of like a roof or a canopy over our earthly experience, um, a, a kind of a um, a divider between the two, and, and God names it here in verse eight. He says, God called the expanse heaven. Now, we often think of heaven as a place Christians go when they die, but that's probably not what is meant here. Heaven probably refers to the sky. So this expanse is something kind of referring to what, what is above us. It's like a divider that separates uh, so in verse seven, you'll see God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above. So it seems to be, you know, as we look up into the sky, we know there are rain clouds, and so there's water that exists above, but there are also waters that exist below on the earth in the form of oceans and seas and ponds and rivers. And so there's this divider that's placed in between the two called an expanse. But you'll also notice here that uh, God engages in the task of naming the things that he has made. So you might have noticed that in verse five, God called the light, he gave it a name, day, and he called the darkness night. And now we see that he has named this expanse in verse eight, heaven. And this is a very important theme. It's very easy to just kind of read over this and think there's nothing here, but there is something here. And that is that by God naming these things, what he's doing is he's demonstrating his authority, his dominion over all creation, his right to interpret reality. What things are and what they mean come from God, not from us. God is the one who assigns functions to things. He makes them and then he gives them a name as a way of assigning to them value and function and purpose. Meaning and purpose in this life is not something that you and I just make up. We don't create our own realities. Truth is not something that is relative and dependent on how we prefer it. Men can't say, I'm a woman. Women can't say, I'm a man, no. We don't make up our own realities. God defines reality for us, 
And man, if you want a world of chaos and disorderliness, have a world where everybody's making up their own reality. And that's the world that we seem to be living in right now. Everybody deciding for themselves what is right in their own eyes, it leads to chaos. And what we need is God to enter into this and give order, and that's what we're seeing here. God is naming things as an expression of his authority and his right to define reality for us. And then in verse six, we get another common word, shows up five times here in chapter one, it's this word separated. The expanse separates the waters from the waters, verse seven, there it is again, separates the waters that were under the water, it's a kind of a divider, and so when you think of separating and dividing things up, it's again a picture of just God bringing order. It's God drawing boundaries. It's God saying this should go here, that should go there. Everything needs to be in its right place. God loves order and organization, which might be discouraging for the messy people among us, but this is true. I mean, I I will get impatient with my own messiness and look at my desk and say, I gotta do something with this, and so what I'll do is I'll start separating things. These papers here, these can go in the trash can, these papers here, I can file these, these papers here, I need to send these to this person or that person, dividing things up, bringing order. That's what God is doing. But when is it, friends, that you are most likely to do that? When when are you most motivated to get things in order in your house, particularly if you're more of a messy person? And I would suggest that's probably when you're about to have company, when people are coming over, guests are on their way, and so you start putting things in order. So I wonder, does that tell us anything about why God is putting things in order? One of the reasons, maybe the chief reason, that God is putting things in order is because company is coming. He's about to have some guests. Those guests are you and me. He's preparing a place for us. He's getting the universe, the earth, ready for us to live in and to flourish. He's cleaning house so that we have a place to live and to thrive. Of course, the creation of man and woman doesn't show up until day six, so we'll get to that next week, but God is getting ready for that. Uh, God is hospitable. You could think of the whole universe as his house, and he's getting his house ready for you and for me. Now, this relates to some interesting scientific things. There is something called uh, the Goldilocks Enigma. Maybe you've heard about this, the Goldilocks Enigma, and uh, this is the idea that just like the fairy tale of, the, um, of Goldilocks and the three bears where they're tasting the porridge and you know, the porridge is, is not too hot, it's not too cool, it's just right. It's kind of one of the key phrases in that, that little um, fairy tale. Well, what some scientists say is that that also describes the conditions of the universe. The conditions of the universe, the the numerical values of the world in which we live are not too high and they're not too low. They're just right for us to live in. It's a remarkable thing. 
if numerical values were shifted even in the slightest way, we wouldn't be able to function. We wouldn't be able to live. And so there are scientists who have taken note of this. A guy named Paul Davies, a physicist from Arizona State, he says, why is nature so ingeniously, and one might say suspiciously, friendly to life? It's almost as if a grind, grand designer had it all figured out. I don't think Paul Davies is a believer. I'm not sure, but I don't think that he is. Um, but here's a guy who admits that he's not, Heinz Oberhummer, humor, an astronomer from the Vienna University of Technology. These are very well-known scientists in their fields. And he says, I'm not a religious person, but I could say this universe is designed very well for the existence of life. The basic forces in the universe are tailor-made for the production of carbon-based life. So we have another example here in the scriptures of how the Bible actually is consistent with much of what science is finding. And what a wonderful God that we worship that he would get things ready for, for you and for me. Now things go wrong in chapter 3, and we'll get to that eventually, but God's intent is for us to live in this universe. Sometimes Christians say, the earth is not my home. Yes, it is. <laughs> the earth is your home, and our future is a new heavens and a new earth when Jesus comes again. So let's go on to the third day in verses 9 through 13. How interesting that Jesus Christ rose from the dead on the third day, and on the third day of creation, we begin to see the signs of life. Jesus comes out of the tomb in new life, and on the third day, we see life. Verse 11, God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, fruit trees. Verse 12, again, vegetation, plants, trees, bearing fruit. Now, the reason that this is possible is because the water that has been covering the earth has been now divided up and separated. Back in verse 9, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. So the waters are kind of shifted over to one place, and then God says, let the dry land appear. So now we see land, and then in verse 10, we see God naming again. Verse 10, God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And then again, God's affirmation that it's good. This is good, and we see the end of the third day. Now, one thing I want to point out here, it's, it's very interesting, very fascinating to me, the, the things that you can see, the patterns and themes that you can see in these early verses that begin to repeat themselves and show themselves over the course of the whole scriptures, actually. You've got to be a careful reader um, to pick these things out. But there are themes and patterns here they are going to show up over and over again. And we'll see more of these themes and patterns as we go through these first three chapters, which just demonstrate to me, it's just proof that the scriptures indeed are God-breathed, and that his Holy Spirit indeed has superintended all of the details of what is written. So let me give you just a couple of examples. Uh, to review from last week, do you remember in last week's sermon, verses 1 and 2, there were 
kind of three main elements. Uh, what we saw is that there, were, there was the deep, there were, there were waters. Remember, there was the spirit hovering above the waters. And then in verse 3, God speaks. Water, spirit above, God speaks. Where does that show up again? Uh, Pastor Brian preached to us uh, a few weeks ago on Jesus' baptism. Matthew chapter 3. Do you remember? Jesus comes up out of the waters. What's, what's above? The Spirit, like a dove descending. The Spirit in the air, above. And then we hear God speak. Behold, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Water, Spirit above, God speaking. Is that a coincidence? that these two things would be connected in this way? I don't think so. This is the spirit of God's way of telling us that when Jesus Christ came, he came as a new creation. Just like God began with the first creation, Jesus comes as a new creation. Well, we also see something similar in these verses 9 through 13. What are the elements that we're seeing here? We've got water again. And we have God doing the work, speaking, making something happen. And we also have this phrase, the dry land appears in verse 9. The dry land. Now, think of those elements. Does that remind you of anything? God's at work. Waters are separated. Dry land appears. Your mind ought to be thinking of the Exodus, right? Exodus chapter 14, and in fact, when we read a description of this, here's what it says. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. The same language from Genesis chapter 1. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. So even here, in these first few verses of Genesis, we're already seeing the gospel. We're already seeing pictures and traces of God's gracious deliverance. The original readers wouldn't have known this, but we have the whole Bible now to look back, and we can put these pieces together. This passage is pointing us forward to God's deliverance of his people, Israel, from bondage to Egypt, crossing the Red Sea on dry land, which finds its ultimate fulfillment in God's deliverance of you and me, not from the Red Sea, not from Egypt, but from our sin, from death, from the torments of the devil. This deliverance through the cross of Jesus and his resurrection from the dead and symbolized in the waters of baptism. The gospel in Genesis chapter 1. So, as we're going to continue to go through this, we're going to be looking for these little details. And I think really these are the eyes we should be kind of looking at this passage through. Not so much how do we account for all the scientific things, although I do want to address those because I know those are questions that people are asking. I'll do the best that I can, but this is not really trying to get us to understand science as it is trying to get us to understand the gospel and how it unfolds throughout the pages of Scripture. So God gives order to the universe, but you know what else through this? God is also giving order to our thinking. There's direction here for how we should think, what we should believe, 
And in these first few verses, again, we see very clear teaching and instruction about certain ideas we should not hold. There's an exposure here of so many false views that are held in our world. We see from these first few um, verses that we are not atheists because in the beginning, God. His existence is assumed. We are not pantheists because the creation itself is not God. God is the creator distinct from his creation. We worship him, not anything in creation. We are not Gnostics. That is that we don't look at the earth and physical existence as something that is evil or bad or sinful, something to escape. We see that it is good and we take our place in God's creation and we rejoice in it. We are not polytheists. We don't believe that there are many gods that are just simply up to you to choose who you want to worship. No, there is just one God, Elohim, the creator of all things, revealed later as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we are not humanists. We are not at the center of the universe, but God is, and he exists so that we might praise him. We don't exist for our glory, but we exist for him. And these false views all exposed here in the first few verses of Genesis. Our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And that is a good way to sum up what we're learning here in Genesis chapter one. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are so good to reveal yourself, so good to speak to us, so good to instruct us. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you are to be worshiped. Thank you for all you have done for us in creation and in redemption through your son. And it's in his name that we pray, amen.